0: Welcome to this week's podcast, Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Oh man, I hope you're good. I hope you're excited about this Christmas season and all that it's going to bring. We're in a season, uh, in a season, we are in a season, but we're also in a season that's in a series, which is what I was trying to say. We're in a series where we're going in this uh, period of Advent, just kind of focusing on what is the good news? What is the good news of great joy? And when you think of the word good news, we talked about it last week. If you did not hear that message, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. When you think of what the good news is, what did the angels announce that was so good news, not just to the shepherds, but to the entire world That would bring joy into your life. Whatever that good news is, we need to understand it, grasp it, live in it, and live out of it. And today what we're doing is we're going to jump into a passage that is often skipped. And it's a bit challenging, so if you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. And if you're ready for this, we're going to read through the genealogy. In fact, we're not going to read it. I was wrong. We're going to sing it. Now you're not going to sing it, and I'm not going to sing it, but there's a video that's going to sing it. So I want you to take some time, grab the Bible we're going to be in Matthew chapter one. And the reason I'm doing this is because there's some uh, names in that genealogy that are challenging at best to repeat, and I think it may engage us. So if you want to grab a Bible, grab in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 17. You guys ready? You guys got this? Well, here we go. Bella, would you play that, play that video?
1: Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez he brought Hezron up and then came Aram, then Dab then Nashan, who is then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon, by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah, followed by Manasseh, who had Amen, who was Amen, who was father of a good boy named Josiah. Zerubbabel, who had Abbey, who had Eliac, who had Eliac, who had like him had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Akim was the father of Eliac. Then he had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Now listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice.
0: Now, I don't know what translation that was. That probably wasn't the authorized version. But hopefully, as you get into this this morning, we're going to discover that the genealogy of Jesus teaches us a lot about the nature and the content of the gospel. Now, today, if you've heard of companies like 23andMe, Ancestry DNA, if you've watched uh, television shows like on PBS, I think there's a show that follows uh, celebrities and well-known individuals. They go back into their genealogy, kind of unpacking their ancestry. Uh, It's never been more popular or easy to access your ancestry. It's a popular thing that people pursue today. And yet genealogies in Jesus' day and genealogies today carry very different significance. See, back in Jesus' day, your genealogy honestly it was like your resume. It was the way that you showed up in the world. If you had ancestors that were significant like David or Abraham, you would walk into the world with confidence, because you're somebody. The people in your line were significant, they've accomplished great things, but on the other hand, if you didn't have David, if you didn't have Abraham, if you didn't have significant people in your background, you'd walk into the world feeling insignificant. Because see, the genealogies in the Old Testament, the New Testament, they carry a degree of identity and understanding about who you are. And see, Matthew, as he's sharing this genealogy with us, he's introducing you to Jesus. Because realize, the gospel writers, they're picking and choosing stories. And Matthew says, I want to introduce you to Jesus, and I want to start by sharing with you some of the ancestors that led to the birth of Jesus. Now, notice, he doesn't choose every ancestor. At the end of this passage, Matthew says there's 14 generations that go from Abraham to David. Now, that's already a problem because there's people that come before Abraham. And so Matthew's starting with Abraham to show us who Jesus is, that he is a son of the Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews, you could say. And then he goes to David, and David was king. David is the one through whom the Messiah would come. There's another 14 generations that go from David David. The exile, and then from the exile to Jesus. And Matthew's trying to teach us something about the identity of Jesus and who he is. Now, I want to give you just a little background on the importance of genealogies in the Old Testament because it gives us a window into the mindset of those that would first hear or read this passage. You know, there are 51 chapters designated in the Old Testament, New Testament that are given to genealogies. 51 chapters. In the book of Genesis, you have nine genealogies. In the book of 1 Chronicles, which is a kind of a a killer for your Bible reading project, there's 17 chapters out of 29 in 1 Chronicles that are devoted to genealogies. Ezra and Nehemiah have nine. So genealogies are important. And one of the things that genealogies would do is they would determine your Jewish ancestry. And so if you owned land, you would know the land that you own based on your genealogy and based on your family. It would also help you understand your inheritance. And it would also help you understand where am I supposed to register like Mary and Joseph. If you remember Mary and Joseph, they go to Bethlehem because Joseph knows his genealogy. He is of the line of David, so they travel to Bethlehem. So your genealogy, it influenced who you are, how people saw you, how you saw yourself. It was also important religiously because all the priests had to be descendants of Levi. Now, how are you going to know you're a descendant of Levi? Because someone needs to track that and find out, yep, I'm a descendant of Levi. I'm from the house of Aaron. I can be a part of the priesthood. Or finally, the overarching genealogy, the great promise of the Old Testament is that the Messiah would come. And every generation after David, people were wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this of the line of David? So the whole arc of the Old Testament is really anchored in a genealogy. And so when we get to this story in Matthew, Matthew introduces Jesus in Matthew 1, 1 this way. And he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Messiah. Now notice he starts with David, and then he says he's the son of Abraham. So he's of the line of David which means he's the Messiah. He comes from that Davidic line, but he's also carrying the promises of Abraham. This is a significant person. Now, I was reading this week about a missionary who was in the Philippines, and she was translating the book of Matthew. I think she was on chapter three, and she was working through the gospel of Matthew, and this tribesman walked into her office, saw Matthew chapter one on her desk, and picked it up. And he seemed really puzzled. He seemed either puzzled, confused, amazed, she wasn't quite sure. And he looked at her and he said, is this true? The story of Jesus, it begins with a genealogy. And she says, yes it does, but you can skip over it. And you can get to the important part. And she realized in that moment she had missed something that he was, he was quite amazed and he looked at her and he said, you're telling me this story is true. And he wrote down the names of that genealogy and he started going through his village, recounting the story in the ancestry of Jesus, because that's the point that Matthew's making. The story of Jesus is anchored in human history. And what Matthew is telling us is something he experienced, something he witnessed. It's a story that's true. Now, why does that matter? And here's the first idea I want to share with you is that the gospel is not first and foremost advice. The gospel, first and foremost, is good news. And see, this is what the angels said in Luke chapter two. The angels came and they announced, fear not for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. See, what are the the angels announcing? They're not giving us information about what we need to do to connect with God. Now, that's the essence of religion. If I could differentiate the difference between Christianity and religion, and religion can be a positive thing, but the difference is that religion says, here's what you need to do to gain God's acceptance. Here's the path you need to take. Here's the laws you need to obey. Here's... Here's the process you need to go through to experience and know God. And realize that's not what the angels are announcing. They're not saying, hey, good news. Here's five things you need to do, and then God's going to love you. Here's four things you need to master. Then you'll experience the grace of God. They're saying, good news, something has happened. And what has happened has radically changed the world, whether you believe that truth or not. See, last week, what we discovered is that the gospel is about the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, that the gospel is about Jesus. And what God is doing through Jesus is bringing everything under his authority, that the Old Testament promises when the Messiah comes, he's going to set right everything that sin has set wrong. How is he going to do that? by bringing it under his authority. And in fact, in the Old Testament it says there's gonna be a day that's coming where the presence of God will cover all of creation like the waters cover the seas. Meaning wherever God's presence is, there is healing, restoration, and that's what the gospel is. Jesus has come to set things right. And so the gospel's not advice about how we need to get to know Jesus. It's news about who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, he's the king of the universe. And it's news about what Jesus has done. And there's an invitation in the gospel for us to respond to the good news. You know, when you think of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you just survey what they focus on, you're going to realize there is a long introduction essentially to one week of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John spent the majority of their time talking about what Jesus did. And focusing really on his last week, which was his death and resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean the teachings of Jesus aren't important. But what they're saying to us is if the life of Jesus isn't true, the teachings of Jesus, they don't matter. Now, hear me on that. If the story of who Jesus is and what he has done isn't true, then listen, we can abandon the teachings. I mean, Paul said if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, guys, go home. Hey, let's go home early, let's eat something good, let's have a good time and have a great week. Let's forget this Jesus thing because if Jesus isn't true, his teachings don't matter. Now realize how different that is from the world religions. In Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha were seen as eternal. And those teachings are true whether Buddha existed or not. Buddhism isn't centered on the Buddha. It's centered on his teaching. Same thing with Muhammad. Though Muhammad was an important and essential character, it's not the life of Muhammad that sets a Muslim apart. It's the teachings of Muhammad. And if you follow the teachings of Muhammad, then you're gonna be a Muslim. Now with Jesus, Christianity doesn't begin with getting into the teachings in the sense of obedience. It's it begins with receiving the news. It it begins with receiving that news which creates a change in the heart, which then leads us into a position of obedience and submission to God. And see, what Matthew's doing with this genealogy, he's starting by telling us what I'm about to tell you is true, and it's good news of what God has done, not just simply advice about what we need to do. Now, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he captured this idea this way. Here's what he said. He said, there's been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. Now, a bit more would not have made a difference. We never have followed the advice of the great teachers. Why would we be likely to begin now? Why would we be more likely to follow Christ than any of the others? Because he's the best moral teacher? Well, that makes makes it even less likely that we shall follow him. If we cannot take the elementary lessons is it likely we're going to take the most advanced ones? If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. The good news of the gospel is that God has done something in human history that leads to joy and a changed life. That's the first idea that Matthew's sharing with us. Now the second is that through this person, Jesus, and what he has done, and really, in this genealogy, Jesus is turning the values of the world upside down. Now, as I said before, in Matthew one, this genealogy, it was, it was something that people, genealogies was something that people would get their identity from. And today, I think a genealogy best relates to a resume. Because when you have a resume, what you tend to do is to put your best foot forward. Listen, if you got a 1.7 in college, you're probably not going to emphasize that. You know, if you failed a class, if you were fired from something, you're probably going to try to find a way in that genealogy to de-emphasize your failures and then to emphasize the things that this employer values. Maybe the school you went to is the same school he went to. Or maybe you were on a project that she was working on. A resume is a way of kind of building yourself up, showing your value, your worth, a reason why someone would hire you. I wanna suggest that a genealogy throughout ancient history was the exact same thing. And what people would do is they would pick and choose who's gonna be a part of the genealogy. It wasn't historic in the sense that every single person listed was the ancestors of that person in the sense that they're in order. Now we see that in Matthew because he picks 14, 14, 14. I can promise you they were not a perfect 14, 14, 14 before the birth of Jesus. And Matthew is picking and choosing certain individuals to tell us something, who were ancestors, understand these are all ancestors, but he's picking them to tell us something about who Jesus is. And he's revealing something about his character, but if a, a genealogy was to be like a resume, I wanna say to you, this resume, Jesus' resume, it stinks. He includes the wrong kinds of people. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Herod the Great, who was king when Jesus was born, He actually went in and changed his public genealogy. Because, see, he wanted the world and all of us, looking back, now we figured out he lied, but he wanted everyone to know how awesome, how amazing he was, so he took all the Uncle George's out. If your name is George, I apologize. But he took all of those people out, all of the kind of rednecks and the the just messed up people, and he put in all of these people and emphasized those who were really significant because he wanted the world to believe he was a worthwhile individual. And if that's what Herod did, Matthew, Matthew does the exact opposite. And I want to look into this. Now, first of all, the first thing that we see is that Matthew includes, and I don't know if you noticed this, five women. Now, that was unusual. Women did not have the prestige, the value, the influence of men in the first century. Women were, even religiously, gender outsiders. And so we have to ask the question, to a Jewish audience, including women would not make your resume look significant. So what is Matthew saying about Jesus that he includes not one, not two, but five different women, gender outsiders. And not only are there gender outsiders, when you look at the identity of the women that he chooses, he doesn't include Sarah, Sarah had been significant, or beautiful Rebecca. Who does he include? He also includes within these women Racial outsiders We have women if you look like Tamar Rahab Ruth Tamar Rahab Ruth two Canaanites and a Moabite Canaanites and Moabites were unclean ungodly idolaters not allowed to go near the temple and worship Why would Matthew include women first of all and then women who? racially you couldn't touch, you couldn't be around. What's Matthew trying to tell us about the identity and the purpose of Jesus' life? He not only includes gender outsiders, women, he not only includes racial outsiders, he also gets into a lot of dirty moral outsiders. Now, when you start reading this list, and if you're a Jewish man or a Jewish woman and you see the name David, you're thinking that's, that's the right name. That's the name you want in your genealogy, I wanna be, right? Like you want that president. Everybody wants George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. You want that significant individual to anchor your genealogy. So you get to David and you think, that's what I'm talking about. And then from David, we go to Abraham. All right, we're talking now. Abraham was significant. From, From Abraham, we go to Isaac, the son of promise. And then from Isaac, we go to Jacob. Now, Jacob was a deceiver, but remember how that worked out? He got a name change. So even though he's a deceiver, things worked out for David, and he becomes Israel. I mean, he becomes, yeah, he becomes Israel, not David. Jacob, you're following me. I'm not following me. I'm catching up. And Israel is is the one that, it, it means that God overcomes. But then watch what happens in line three. This is where everything starts to go south. In line three, it says, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, so they're twins, whose mother was Tamar. Again, Tamar, a woman, gender outsider, but she's also, and Judah, are both moral outsiders. Because see, Judah was unjust to Tamar. Now, who's Tamar? You ready for this? His daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law, sister would be bad. Daughter-in-law. Tamar, the daughter-in-law, sleeps with her father-in-law. It's kind of messed up, isn't it? Now, why did that happen? Well, I'm not going to get in the whole story, but Judah was unjust to Tamar. And Tamar knew something about Judah. He likes prostitutes. Jesus' genealogy. He frequents prostitutes. So what Tamar does to get back, because she wants a lineage, she dress up like a prostitute. Judah, Tamar, they come together. I don't know how he didn't recognize her. That's not in the story. She becomes pregnant. Now, he doesn't know he slept with Tamar, does he? He notices that Tamar's pregnant, and his son is dead. That was his, her husband. And he says, Tamar, I'm going to put you to death. You've obviously committed adultery. And she says, wait a minute. I have the belt of the man whom I slept with. <laughs> Thanksgiving, right? Right. Here it is, and what does Judas do? He goes, oh my, you are much more righteous than I am. Now why would you include that? Isn't that the Uncle George you skip? What is Matthew saying about the lineage of Jesus? And it goes on, watch this, verse five. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now Rahab is mentioned eight times In the Old and New Testament, six times she carries the title prostitute. So that's her history. Now, Rahab is actually in the hall of faith. She had great faith and trust in God, though she was a prostitute. She protected the spies in Jericho. Joshua sent spies into Jericho. She protects them. And she actually prophesies to the nation of Israel that they're going to be victorious. But why would you include somebody that's a prostitute? What is it about, I mean, what good could come from a prostitute? Except for Jesus. So you have verse 5, you have Rahab, and then look at verse 6. We get to the guy, the one everybody wants in your story. And I think if Matthew was wise, or if he was trying to build up Jesus' identity, he would have skipped over this part. And he would have said, listen, David, he was the father of Solomon. And Solomon, let's skip over that, was the father of Rehoboam. Now let's just keep moving on, but he doesn't do that, does he? Watch what happens in verse six. And Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What's he leaving out? He's leaving out her name. Why would you include Uriah? Because he's digging a ditch that's deeper and deeper. He's showing how David himself was a moral outsider. Who was Uriah? If you know the story of the Old Testament, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Protected David. When David was on the run, he risked his life for David. So David owed his allegiance, his love, and his devotion to Uriah. So when David becomes king, how does he repay Uriah? Yeah, exactly. It's how you repay somebody in the Old Testament. He sees Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. He knows it's Uriah's wife. It's not mistaken identity in this case. And she's bathing. Now, see, often people would bathe on their rooftops, and somehow I'm sure there's there's coverings around her, but he he gets a glimpse, and he wants her. And because David has power, he takes her. I don't see this as a consensual relationship. And then when he sleeps with her, he says, uh-oh, <laughs> she's pregnant. So I got to I, I, I solve this. What does he do to Uriah? He doesn't come out clean. He kills Uriah, puts him at the front of an army, this guy who defended David, and he kills him. Now, again, if you're trying to build up the lineage of Jesus and reveal that he's the Messiah, right? He's morally pure. He's God incarnate, God in human flesh. This is not the resume you start with. This isn't Harvard. Stanford, Yale, Baylor University, right? What is he trying to communicate? Matthew's revealing to us something about the nature of Jesus. And when you, again, look over this list, you find that it's not just filled with a few moral failures. There's moral failures throughout. Matthew includes people who were not the firstborn. Often that's the lineage that would follow. Jacob was the secondborn. Judah was the fourthborn. And you also, I think, interestingly find people like Hezron, Ram, Azor, Zadok, Achim. who? We don't even know who they are. In terms of biblical history, they have been forgotten, and yet Matthew includes them in this narrative. We know nothing about these men, but it also includes some of the worst kings in Israel's history. Rehoboam divided Israel into two. We discover that there is Ahaz, who rejected God and worshipped idols. Manasseh was the worst ruler in Judah. What is Matthew trying to say? I think Matthew's making a point about Jesus that he understood personally. Because, see, Matthew was also a moral outsider. He was a tax collector. Somebody in his culture that God could not love, God could not accept, God could not receive. And yet, through the grace of God and the acceptance of Jesus he encountered the love of God. Isaiah chapter 53, verse six, says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Matthew is saying it's through faith in Jesus that we are made acceptable to God. It's through faith in Jesus that we are made acceptable to God. Because see, in the Old Testament, when you're around somebody who is unholy, or unclean they were contagious you couldn't get next to a Gentile they would make you unclean and if you're unclean you can't get into the presence of God and so you had to stay morally clean what is Jesus who is he he is the one whose holiness isn't affected by our unholiness But when you get near Jesus, you become holy as he is holy because his relationship with the Father becomes yours. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you share his relationship with the Father. It's through faith in Jesus that we're made acceptable. Matthew understood that. And then second, what Matthew's showing us is that everybody, can we say that again? Everybody, prostitute or king, is in need of the grace of God. There is no way to earn God's favor. There is no advice God can give you that will allow you to be acceptable in his sight. It's only through grace and grace alone that God welcomes us into his presence. Hebrews chapter two, verse 11. I love this. It says, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. We are welcome into the family of God through grace and through grace alone. What is Matthew telling us? He's turning the values of the world upside down. He's turning the values of the world. Who are the acceptable people? Who are the good people? Are they the powerful, the rich? Those that went to Harvard, Yale? Who are the ones that God loves? You ready for this? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus says, The ones who are blessed are the ones who surrender themselves to me, who recognize their need for grace. These are the ones that encounter the joy and the good news of the gospel. In this genealogy, Matthew's showing us that Jesus is turning the values of the world and what the world says is valuable. Jesus says, It's not valuable in the eyes of the Father. God desires something different. So we see, first of all, that the gospel is good news, it's not advice. Secondly, it turns the values of the world upside down. And then third, and interestingly, the gospel is our ultimate rest. Now, if you notice, Matthew loves numbers. So let's jump down to the end of this passage. We didn't read it. It wasn't sung, I guess. But in verse 16 and 17, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, which really emphasizes Mary, Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Thus, he says, there are 14 generations, right, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Matthew structures this genealogy into three groups of 14. So there's 14 generations, if you want to show that, from Abraham to David. There's 14 generations from David to the exile, which is a significant event. And then there's 14 generations from the exile to Christ. Now, within 14, you also have this other number, which is seven, so two sevens, two sevens, two sevens, we got six sevens. Now, if you know seven in the Old Testament is significant. God created in six days, right? On the seventh day, God rested. God said the seventh day is holy. And so he said all, all of his people should rest and he should allow, we should allow everybody who works for us to rest and the land to rest and our animals to rest. And then every seven years in Israel, the land had to rest. And so they wouldn't plant in that seventh year so that everything would rest. And then on the seventh, seventh year, seven times seven year, seventh, seven, was called the year after the 49th year was the year of Jubilee. That every 50, 49, 50 years, every slave would be set free in the nation. Every debt would be forgiven. The land would be set free and everyone had a basically a year off to rest. That was the year of Jubilee. Now, what is Matthew saying about Jesus? Jesus, if you'll notice, is the seventh seven. He is the year of freedom. That from Jesus on, the year of Jubilee is begun. Jesus is our rest. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says to us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And notice, I... Will give you rest. I am your rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. How is Jesus our rest? All of us want to be loved. I think as children we grow up longing to be recognized to belong to love. And then in life, we find that we have to earn people's love. Well, the good news of the gospel is you do not have to earn God's love. There's nothing you can do to gain God's love. There's nothing you can do to lose God's love. For God so loved the world that we get to rest. We get to rest in God's love for us, that I am Abba's child. On my worst day, I am an adopted son of God. In my worst sin, in my worst moments, do you recognize and receive the identity that God has given you, that he has laid his love upon you, and he has lavished that love upon you, and it's to change your identity? Romans says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, nothing. Nothing. That's good news. Nothing will separate you from the love of God because you have been accepted through Jesus Christ. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can rest in God's love. Second, church, you don't need to prove yourself to God. Do you realize how much energy you are expending every single moment to prove to the world that you matter? That little dash between two dates, right? Date of birth, date of death. And in between, there's a lot of burden, toil. I got to prove that I'm significant. I got to prove that I matter. And often we're working almost to get that validation. I'm loved. I'm significant. I have enough money. I have enough things. And the good news of the gospel is you're you're sufficient in yourself. God has created you. He loves you. He's redeemed you. And if God is for us, then who shall be against us? We don't have to prove ourselves to the world, which gives you freedom. Ready for this? To be who God created you to be. He created you in your weaknesses, in your strengths, in your idiosyncrasies. And I want to ask you, do you see yourself the way that God sees you? If you don't, you're not going to love your neighbor. Do you know why? Because Jesus said, you've got to love your neighbor as you're loving yourself. And if you don't claim your identity in Christ for yourself before the Father, you're not going to treat others around you the way that God wants you to treat them because you're not going to see them rightly. Do you realize what he's saying? When Jesus has come, we don't have to earn God's love. We don't have to prove that we're significant enough. And then The last thing is you don't have to carry the worries of the world. God is your provider. God is your healer. What are you looking for? God is your husband. God is your redeemer. Are you afraid? God is your refuge. He is your high tower. God is your strength. And what Jesus wants us to do, what God wants us to do, is to cast our anxieties on Him because He says, I'm big enough. What are you carrying? What weights, what accusations do you carry? You see, Jesus is our rest, and His invitation to us in this good news is, is come. You can do that, right? I can't be a David, I can't be a king. I can't be Uriah, I can be myself. I can be who God has created to me to be and I can bring my brokenness and I can bring my sin and I can bring my identity and I can bring who I am to the Father and through the grace of Jesus Christ, I can be accepted and received and I can cast my burdens on him and I can see myself as Jesus sees me. That's good news. That's amazing News. That's the kind of news that shakes the world and transforms a heart. I I wonder if you have received it. Have you received the grace of God through Jesus Christ? If you haven't, before we share communion, I would encourage you just simply to say, Father, accept me through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I don't come with anything in my hands to prove that I'm worthy. I simply entrust myself to you. Forgive me, accept me. That's the gospel. And maybe for some of us, what we need to do in this time of reflection is just to lay down some burdens. There could be anxieties that you're carrying, brokenness, lies, deceit. To recognize through his grace, through his love, his forgiveness, you are welcome, you are accepted. So if you haven't grabbed the communion elements, will you do that? Those elements are available up front. You can also grab them in the back and we'll spend some time in reflective prayer just meeting with our Father and then we'll share together and the gift of communion together. Let's, let's pray. Receive the words that Jesus gives. Come to me, all you who are weary. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. I want to give you rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed he took bread he broke it and gave thanks and he said take and eat for this is my body broken for you let us receive it together and in the same way after supper he took a cup and he said this cup It represents the new covenant, the relationship established in my blood. Let us receive it together.